Hello, welcome to Med Mother Matriarch. My guest today is Diana Fleischmann. She's an evolutionary psychologist, a writer, and a very candid interviewee. We spoke about uh, uncanny vulvas and Diana's um, uh, slightly infamous essay on the subject. We spoke about why polyamory really isn't for everyone. Uh, and we spoke about why no one wants to talk about mate value, but why we all act as if we recognize the existence of mate value. Uh, it was a really fun conversation. Diana is a brilliant mind. I hope you really enjoy it. Diana, you wrote uh, an essay several years ago, which made a huge impression on me. I wrote about it in my book. It was called Uncanny Volvers, possibly the best <laughs> title that I can imagine for such a piece. Could you explain a little bit about your thesis in that, in that particular essay? Uh, Uncanny Volvers ruminated about the possible evolutionary consequences or the consequences in terms of evolutionary psychology of having perfect, if not better than female substitutes for women's companionship for men and the downstream effects that that would have in terms of status striving, in terms of men's aggressiveness, and in terms of the dating market for men and women. So sex dolls in common parlance. Sex dolls, uh, although I think it was Elizabeth Nolan who said that uh, right now, I don't know if, if your audience or you have ever come in contact with a Teddy Ruxpin doll, but there were these these teddy bears and you'd put a tape in them and they'd have this automatronic mouth where they would read stories to you. And she said that currently that's what a sex robot is. It's like a, a Teddy Ruxpin doll that you can have sex with. <laughs> a Teddy Ruxpin doll. Okay. Uh, so they're not quite sex robots yet, but yet, uh, yeah, sex dolls that would have, you know, better better technology than what's, you know, there are sex robots right now, but they're like sex, Teddy Ruxpins that you can have sex with. Yeah. Mm. And they, I, I, I mean, the, 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 uh, the joke in the title, right. Is that at the moment, um, and maybe for some time yet, sex robots set off that uncanny valley pe feeling in that they are, um, weird and creepy because they are not quite like dolls, but not quite like humans and something horrible in between. And if I remember rightly, your argument was that some men are not going to mind so much about that. And those men are going to be the sort of um, pioneers, for want of a better term. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be on the frontier of perversity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, you mean, you already see this somewhat. Like I've seen 3D porn of varying degrees of realisticness and, and some of it's very popular, even though it doesn't look anything like real sex. And I imagine that you, given your stance on pornography would, I guess, be in favor of 3d porn, you know, that involves anim animation and not actual people. Yeah. I d definitely think that it's better. It's definitely ethically preferable. I think to the status quo. Um, though, obviously the, the ramifications really for male users are, are disturbing potentially um, in that um, it really throws the incentives off, right? If you can get, this is already to some extent the case with porn and would become even more true with even better porn in that 
if you no longer have any incentive to have sex in the real world, some portion of men are just going to opt out of doing that. And I, I, I mean, I don't know. What do you think in terms of the uh, the wider consequences of that? I have mixed feelings about pornography because almost every man that I would talk to would say, I think a real flesh and blood partner is better than porn. But obviously a real flesh and blood partner is more difficult to court, more difficult to have uh, foreplay with. And it seems to me, because I'm, I'm writing about sort of behaviorism in relationships, that it's very easy for a man to feel like it's not worth him to make an effort to initiate sex. You, you, I don't know if you've ever been to a Reddit forum called Dead Bedrooms. I've, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. I've heard and of it. I've not actually, I've not actually. Dead Bedrooms there. is amazing because mm. some people really do go into the, the trajectory and there are definitely men who have a, a pornography problem or they're, they're using pornography to the exclusion of having sex with their wives or, or girlfriends. And it's because they don't want to do whatever is required to have sex, you know, even, even if that's a very low bar to clear. For but example. I think in, in general, uh, you know, men, men prefer to have uh, actual intercourse with somebody. What's, what are the kind of hurdles that they don't want to jump? Well, I mean, occasionally something magical happens where some, some man complains about his wife on there and then she comes on and says he doesn't wash. Oh, no. Or uh, the okay. last time we had foreplay, it was literally 45 seconds. Or I am up for it. You know, but but uh, it's it gets difficult because we're t- tired because we have young children, or uh, he, you know he, he is incredibly overweight and he didn't mention that at all in his in his soliloquy. So y- you do occasionally see people who you know who who come on and set the record straight because they they're reading it independently of their partners and they figure out that it's actually them that they're talking about. But yeah, a very low bar perhaps of washing your balls. <laughs> all of life is on reddit i mean reddit is actually a really really invaluable resource if if as as you and i both are you're interested in relationships because people can be very candid obviously you just get one side of it but it's very interesting uh the the regretful parents reddit is also very instructive and i think i know something about that that must be a sad reddit it is very sad but yeah there's a lot of a lot of wisdom there i think i find antinatalist reddit very disturbing um there's a lot of crossover between antinatalist reddit and, and like depressed reddit and you know when you can see subreddits that people are like are more are more likely than not to also be members of and that one has some quite disturbing uh disturbing crossover those people are very sad i don't know if you've heard of uh uh benatar i think it's david benatar who wrote better to have never been born is that his book yeah, yeah. and he never appears on camera and I know somebody who invited him for talks he doesn't want to be photographed because he doesn't want people to psychoanalyze him as to why he thinks it's better to not exist because if he shows evidence of being depressed or unattractive he feels that that's going to undermine his message interesting as a as an evolutionary um psychologist is that right? Or evolution biologist, which do you think is a better? I'm an evolutionary psychologist, but I never correct people who call me an evolutionary biologist, considering that's a much more rigorous field. Than <laughs> is evolutionary psychology not a, not a subset of 
evolutionary biology or would you say that it's 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 separate it's quite separate it okay we read a lot of evolutionary biology when i was in graduate school but certainly evolutionary biologists don't want us to be part of their club in general right uh, but evolutionary psychology really runs runs the gamut you know there are people who do incredibly amazing detailed work they go and measure actual number of offspring that people have uh, they measure immune parameters and hunter-gatherers. And then there are people who just, from an armchair, theorize b- b- basic things or say that the, the, the Jews are in a cabal against the goys in the world. That's also an evolutionary psychologist who does that. So it makes sense that people have mixed feelings because there are certainly a huge array of people who call themselves evolutionary psychologists. Yes, and the 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 I want to get back to talk about antinatalism, but the, <laughs> the um the most common criticism of evolutionary psychology that I've come across is that it is basically just speculating that it's that it's non falsifiable that it's just so stories that it's basically you know these armchair guys and gals but mostly guys um coming up with explanations for things that they can't actually prove what what's the what's the defense of evolutionary psychology from that charge? That charge is, is often true, and there oh. are many things that are difficult to prove or disprove, and yeah. there are many conjectures about human nature. Even if you have come up with something that counts as evidence, you know, there was a, <laughs> there was a study, I think, in Greece or Cyprus, where I think something like 10% of men said that they would prefer for their partners to be exclusively lesbian, and I think they don't know what that means. <laughs> I think that had an, that was the influence of porn on their on their major, yeah, okay. and so from that p- perspective, the author said, "Well, obviously, same sex attraction in women is a way to lure men." I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I don't think that's a very good ex- explanation for same sex attraction, I, and I've written a lot about same sex attraction, but you know, there was some evidence t- to support it. But it's definitely you can see something out in the world, and then you can try and and what they call reverse engineer it. But I also think evolutionary psychology, whatever that Churchill quote is, it's, 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 it's bad, but it's the best system that we have of explaining human behavior. And I really appreciated how you used evolutionary psychology in a way that I've never seen from a non-evolutionary psychologist in trying to untangle why some aspects of sexuality and human mating are so sticky literally and also figuratively <laughs> where they uh where they're they're, they're difficult to, to undermine if it's the patriarchy or if it's culture then why are these things so difficult to change mm-hmm. the argument that i try using with people who are really um dead set on the on the blank slatest view of sexuality and of human behavior in general is when you're looking at something like uh i don't know male preference for um average male preference for more casual sex you know compared with women um i'm not aware of any culture on the anthropological record or historical record where women have been more into casual sex than men have been and i think if if you're flipping a coin a thousand times or more and it comes up heads every time the chances of it being just down to the sort of chance of politics and, and socialization seemed extremely low to me um and people seem to find that 
well, sometimes people find that persuasive. Sometimes people just get very cross with me. I get I, I get in trouble with friends sometimes for my uh, my uh, insistence that evolution didn't stop at the neck. Um, why do you think it is that people just some people just just hate this discipline, hate your discipline? I think the first reason is what do they call economics? The the depressing science, the the grim science, I can't remember. With evolutionary psychology, it ascribes motives and attitudes to people that are incredibly cynical and also don't separate human beings from animals. All of these things are not welcome news to anybody. But if you are somebody who wants to make the world a better place or who has aspirations of human nature not being so fixed such that interventions might work to make humans better, it's also very depressing to think, well, some of these things are going to be very hard to change. It's going to be very hard to change men's capacity for sexual aggression. It's going to be very hard to change. Some people find it bad news that it's very hard to change women's propensity to be unhappy after casual sex versus men. And if you push any kind of cultural narrative, as many people have done, and as you argued in your book, that might make women quite unhappy, women and girls, then that's that's very unwelcome as well. Evolutionary psychology, as I said, also has a huge range of figures who are involved in it. You know, people who do really detailed anthropological work to um, somebody like Satoshi Kanazawa, who became incredibly controversial uh, for writing about race in various unsophisticated ways, right? Do you think to some extent because it has been um, slightly stigmatized as a discipline, it's attracted slightly suspect characters or or possibly has has, um, deterred people who might otherwise make really good contributions to it? There are people who are making contributions to evolutionary psychology who just don't call themselves evolutionary psychologists. The One of the major splits has been in behavioral ethology versus evolutionary psychology. And evolutionary psychology is itself a neologism for sociobiology, which became very controversial after E.O. Wilson wrote sociobiology. So I do think that there are some edgy people who are attracted to it, but because it says things, many things that mainstream progressives find unpalatable. Of course, it attracts red pill, manosphere, those kinds of types. And I've been combing through some of the manosphere and red pill stuff, and it gets a lot of uh, evolutionary psychology wrong. But I think for your average person, the red pill version of evolutionary psychology is probably the best known version. It's the most publicized version. Mm, Interesting. What does it get wrong? I've also combed through all of those parts of the internet. (laughs) Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short-term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. 
Its algorithm prioritizes immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine and feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R dot A-I. I think that they, in a little bit the same way that 4chan and other male forums, men push each other further and further to say edgy or edgier things. You know, the idea that any woman over 30 is is worthless, that the idea that, um, you you know, women's attractiveness is the main thing that matters. And it's, they're on a scale of, you know, rating women on a scale of, of one to 10, um, this idea that, that, you know, of like negging and things like that, that women are going to be strongly attracted to men. It, it's definitely optimized for a certain kind of hookup culture. And there are people who are red pill adjacent who are telling you, okay, this is how you get married. You know, my husband wrote a really good book that people just call a pickup artist book or a red pill book, but it's actually a book on how to get into a long-term relationship and how, if you are seeking out casual sex, trying to make sure that the people you're seeking out casual sex with also want casual sex with you such that you're not exploiting anybody or that you're unlikely to be making anybody, you know, deeply unhappy, but mostly talking about talking to young men about how to get a girlfriend, that huge subset of young men who really just want somebody. What was the title of that book? I haven't read that one of his. It's called mate. And it's written with a notorious, guy who wrote a uh, a book or he wrote a bunch of books i think one of them is called i hope they serve beer in hell it's by a guy called tucker max who had this incredibly raucous and strongly embellished <laughs> young adulthood in in hooking up and frat parties and things like that uh, famously he convinced a x-ray technician to give him a blowjob under an x-ray so they went back to the doctor's office or wherever she worked she unlocked the door and he claims, and I saw a picture of it, and it's not very interesting because penises don't come up. Actually, you just your <laughs> earrings and her teeth, and then you know, <laughs> there's like nothing there. Um, but he claims in the story, very amusingly, that he went to go see a doctor, and the doctor said, "You've got very low testosterone," and he says, "Oh, maybe it's that time that my balls got X-rayed." <laughs> and she, and he says the doctor was so upset she left to go throw up. I think that's about <laughs> but yeah, he apparently had to have testosterone replacement therapy because he uh, he nuked his his testicles. Cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did he? Is he one of these pickup artists who's come to sort of regret the lifestyle? And yeah, yeah, he's married and has I don't know three or four children now. And uh, yeah. he around the time that he wrote this book with Jeffrey was when he specifically was saying, I'm looking for a wife. So he moved to a specific city, which was Austin, Texas to find the specific woman he was looking for. He wanted a woman who did CrossFit and who was a nurse and he married a woman who does both. 
cool. It's quite easy to find women who do CrossFit. You just go to a <laughs> CrossFit gym. It's very, <laughs> it's very good strategy. Um, it is a it is a very common thing for the pickup artist guys to grow to grow out of it, or in the most extreme case, um, Rush V convert to Orthodox Christianity and completely um, swear off all the Red Bull stuff, Didn't all the pickup artistry stuff. Psychedelic experience that motivated that. That might be right, yeah. But um, it, it does seem as though men do often kind of grow out of it. Um, is it because, I guess it's because, partly because peak, me- peak male sex drive is is in, what, teens and 20s. And so they will reach the point where having lots of casual sex just becomes less appealing because their sex drive is lower. Do you think there's also a, a cost to men longer term um, of of pursuing casual sex all the time in terms of their a reputational cost or... So I don't think that there's a bad reputational cost for engaging a lot of casual sex if you're a man. I don't even think there's necessarily bad reputational cost for engaging a lot of casual sex when you're a woman. Uh, I, I maybe will talk about my history a bit. I was never part of hookup culture, but I definitely had a lot of people that I had casual relationships with that I had also um, sexual relationships with. There is a very unfortunate... <laughs> analogy that some people in the evangelical right use in the United States, which says that you're like a piece of tape. And every time you stick a piece of tape to something new, the tape gets less sticky. And it's an analogy for the more casual sex that you have, the more sex you have with various people, the less easily you can attach. And in my case, I actually like the fact that I attach less well than I did when I was 17. When I was 17, I fell in love with a, an incredibly stupid butcher at the grocery store. <laughs> like just cause we had sex once I was in love with him and it was very silly. Uh, whereas I know some men who had so much casual sex that they're not even very excited about the person they end up marrying. There's so much comparison happening in their minds and those kinds of comparison, you know, that kind of comparative psychology, it could work pretty well if you have 20 people to choose from, but it doesn't work very well if you've had sex with 100 or 200 people uh, or been in relationships with many, many people, especially if some of those women were potentially, I guess I'll just have to say it plainly, too good for you. And then you end up having to settle for somebody else. I, I've seen many people who seem unhappy with who they end up with because they think too much about whatever the, the ones who got away. There are all of these surveys out there showing that um, the fewer partners you've had, the higher your marital satisfaction. But then I've always thought it must be hard to disentangle that from people um, having religious faith, because if you've had zero partners before marriage in contemporary culture, it's probably because you're religious in some way. But um, do you think even even if you um, control for that, is it still the case that fewer partners seems to result in better marriage satisfaction? I don't satisfaction? know a study controlled for that, but it seems like it's very similar results as um, if you live with somebody before marriage, you're more likely to get divorced. Hmm. And I think that's also uh, religious. But marital satisfaction, it also has to do with the people you surround yourself with, I think. Religious people... <clears throat> 
tend to endorse being satisfied. You know, I wrote this thread and I'm going to write a piece about it uh, in the next week about how if you go to more secular spaces, like if you go on Reddit, everybody's complaining about how terrible their their relationships are. And there's a certain cachet in having a terrible relationship. Whereas I think in religious communities, if you said, you know, you're deeply unhappy with your husband. One of the books that I read in preparation for the book that I'm writing is called The Power of a Praying Wife. And there are all of these religious movies and books that secular people don't know about that are incredibly popular. I can't remember how many copies this sold. 10 million, 12 million. Can't remember. And uh, she says, if you have, if you're unhappy with your husband, you should pray about it instead of going directly to him. And it, it is a way of reducing your marital dissatisfaction. Yes. I saw the tweet that you did about this, which presumably inspired your, um, um, your upcoming piece on how often on uh, Reddit and other um, forums when women, women will sort of whinge about something that their partner has done, which actually might be relatively minor <clears throat> and they'll be inundated with women saying divorce or on Mumsnet. I don't know if you've ever been on Mumsnet much. The acronym is um, LTB, leave the bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you get LTB for pretty minor stuff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are, there are examples of that being good, you know, because you do have women going on and, and they'll say, you know, my husband like imprisons me in the home. Is this normal? Yeah. You do occasionally get that. And then, and then LTB is completely appropriate, but you do also get LTB in response to like, <clears throat> my husband forgot to hang the washing out again. Yeah. I think, was it your book that talked about, it was your book that talked about how it's, it's good that divorce is less stigmatized than it used to be. Uh, but there there might be costs and benefits of having yeah, yeah, yeah. divorce being more heavily stigmatized. Yeah. The sweet what spot is, it? is really hard to reach, I think, with divorce tolerance. Or was it was it that was you, maybe it was your stat in your book where it said I don't know thirty percent or fifty percent of people regret getting divorced. I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it seems to be about a third. Yeah. Yeah, people surprisingly high. I was surprised yeah. by that. Um. But I guess it does make sense. And also we know that um, women initiate divorce more often than men do, which is a slight fly in the ointment of my argument, which is that, you know, that marriage is protective for women. Although I do think on that point that it might, you know, the only thing that we can measure is women, is who like files for divorce, who does the paperwork. Is it possible that women are just being a bit more organised about doing the paperwork, given that women generally tend to be a bit more conscientious than men on that kind of thing? I think that for women they're more likely to tr start an affair or start looking in order to trade up. Whereas men, what they normally do is try and keep as many women around and see what the, what the tolerance for each of those women are. So a man is much more likely to have an affair and then, you know, neglect his wife or pay less attention to her and kind of see what she'll put up with. And it seems to make, if you think that men are, trying to optimize to have more than one partner, it makes sense that what they would try to do is juggle rather than trade in or trade up. And that's, if a woman is the person who's being juggled, it makes sense for her to want to leave. Mm. Yes, this is an interesting thing I discovered in research for the book that um, men and women have affairs for quite different reasons and with quite different kinds of 
partners. So men are more likely to seek out casual sex with um, women they don't have any intention of actually leaving their wives for. Whereas women tend to look for lifeboats. So they'll look for a man who actually they really want to marry. And indeed, women will tend to want casual sex with men who sort of reach, have all of the same qualities that they'd look for in a husband. Whereas men have this twin track thing where they have the kind of the marriageable women and they have the the, the, the fun women. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the tragedy of not of women not really understanding male sexuality because we lie about it all the time is that um, women don't know about that. And so I think, or at least young women, I think, will often mistake sexual interest for um, romantic interest. And actually, they're not the same thing at all. Women, well, there's this sexual, or there's this romantic under-perception bias that Marty Hazelton and David Buss have written about, where if you ask men and women, if you say, I love you, does it really mean that you love the other person? And women are more skeptical of men's overtures than I, I think it depends on how how deep in you are. I think this was said if somebody says I love you on a first date, do you believe them? As opposed to if somebody says I love you after, you know, a couple of months, there's a certain, you know, wishful thinking difference. And one of the ovulatory effects that I'm not sure has replicated or what's happened with it is that women who are ovulating are more likely to see CADs as being potentially willing to invest in them. So they're more likely to delude themselves that men who are in evolutionary psychology, there's this dichotomy of men, CADs and dads, and there are other people who've talked similar ways, but uh, dads are investing men. These two main strategies that men have of making reproductive success happen. And then there are CADs who are more interested in casual sex, more attractive to more women, less likely to commit, et cetera. Am I right that they're not strictly discrete populations, that they're, oh, no. yeah. men might operate in different modes in different circumstances? Yeah, I think that men might operate in, in different modes in different circumstances. And I also think this is quite similar to like attachment theory, which I think has tons of problems. You know, People say, oh, this person has this kind of attachment. I've seen a lot of men who have avoidant attachment and then they, they marry somebody within three months of meeting them. You can have avoidant attachment with most women and secure attachment with the kind of woman you want to marry. And the discriminating variable there is what we would call mate value, right? The, the degree to which you're desirable to other people, the degree to which you have qualities that people want in a romantic partner. And because nobody ever wants to talk about mate value because it's gross, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you get all these other concepts that don't really make any sense. Yes, it's it's a very hard thing to talk about, even though it's something that people, I think, are constantly thinking about and, you know, behaving accordingly. Our revealed preferences are that we, you know, care a great deal about my value, but it's quite a hard thing to um, to talk about. I think it's possibly also something that um, uh, women really don't like openly talking about. I'm sure that this is part of what's driving some of the sort of um, big is beautiful kind of third wave feminist stuff about um, expanding the definition of beauty and you know, you know what I mean, the kind of magazine, social media stuff. I cannot believe that women really think that you can like rewrite what men find beautiful. I uh, saw the stat that um, some woman, some fat activist had posted about how fat women and 
average size well, average size women is are is actually now overweight, but fat women and and uh, normal BMI women um, have similar amounts of casual sex. And she used this as evidence for the idea that men find bigger women just as attractive. They just don't want to get in relationships with them for, for societal reasons. But this obviously hasn't taken into account that men have very low standards for casual sex. Yes. You put it so bluntly. I mean, yeah, it's true. You know, the, um, uh, Julie Bendel, um, radical feminist and friend of mine who um, strongly disagrees with me on all of this stuff, but she's, um, she's very funny about this and she has a little collection of examples of men having sex with different inanimate, inanimate objects, um, like bikes or like, <laughs> you know, being caught in sort of compromising situations. And the, the funniest one is um, a guy who was caught having sex with a pile of leaves in a car park. <laughs> So yes, I mean it's it's a useful thing to remember, and I think it's something that um, particularly young women really don't realise um, how cheap male sexual interest is. Male romantic interest is not cheap, you know. A man who wants to form a relationship with a woman that's that's that means something. But yeah, sexual interest is not at all hard to come by. But I think it's something that um, you know, if you're a fifteen year old girl or something, and you've suddenly discovered that you're you have this strange power which is also very dangerous i don't think most of them realize um what male sexuality I'm, is like i'm crunchy and malformed oh don't worry someone will want you a man has in the pile of leaves. yes um yeah that's that's something that is difficult to i don't know if you you talked about it very much but yeah the, the when women discover that they have sexual power it's it's very seductive and um you know, certainly if somebody has, has gotten a lot of attention from, from men and they think I could make a living on this and I don't have to, I don't know, bag groceries or whatever the case may be. And it's tricky that this sexual power that women have is the first power they get. Yeah. And it's very fleeting as well. You don't have it for that much of your life. So you can potentially convert it into sort of lasting economic or social power, normally by marrying a powerful man um, or in some instances, you know, being an actress or a model or somehow using your beauty to secure sort of long-term financial stability. But in general, it's quite, a, it's, it's basically a power that's only, it don't, it's only really powerful in a sort of vicarious way. If you can, if you can use it to attract men, and I don't think that, I don't think a lot of beautiful young women necessarily realise that. We may do. I mean, what do you, what do you think is going on with something like OnlyFans, where you've got, you know, one feminist analysis of what's going on there is you've got lots of young women who are sort of being, um, deluded into. Um, selling themselves and degrading themselves and they don't really know what they're doing and they're, you know, that's, that's, there's one feminist argument that sort of um, downplays their agency and then there's another that says, well, these are just kind of sassy girl bosses who are utilising whatever tools they have to get ahead. What would, the, what would the evolutionary psychologist say to what's going on there? I don't know what... what what an evolutionary psychology and informed view would necessarily be, but you have to consider the kind of selection effect that's going on there. Right. 
So women who don't have a lot of other ways to make money, the other ways that they would make money are onerous or boring or tedious or horrible, whatever the case may be. And so they decide to go on OnlyFans and some subset of, you know, cause you, you and a lot of other people have talked about how OnlyFans girls, um, most of them make very little money. And so it's actually not worth them sacrificing whatever their reputation may be. Although I think people should be able to be school teachers and, you know, have normal jobs just because their genitals have been online. And, you know, Dan Savage has got some funny things he says about this, that, you know, in the future, every politician will have a sex tape. And uh, remember, The Onion did a very funny uh, thing about this. Is like, what can you tell about your politician based on watching his teenage sex tape or whatever? It's kind of looking at this kind of future. Um, well, there'll be deep fakes eventually as well. I mean, one of the yeah. weird side, like positive side effects of deep fakes is it will be impossible. Everyone who's actually got a sex tape has nothing to fear because suddenly you'll be, it'll be impossible to tell whether it's authentic or not. And everyone will have one. So it will kind of like flood the market and degrade the currency that currently exists. I'm going to be a little harsh on, on women who do OnlyFans because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've seen some some women on, on Reddit who post their OnlyFans. They must be making a ton of money and then they just disappear and then they get they come back up and then they disappear and they're just not consistent. And these are not – these are women who are just posting, you know, nude, some of them without their faces – and if you have very little other ways to make money, there's, there's a reason for that. And it could be because you don't, you're not very conscientious or you're not very tenacious or you don't have a lot of perseverance. And, you know, this is going to sound like a circuitous story, but if, if I, I sign up for a meditation retreat, um, the meditation retreat opens at 6 a.m. and you have to sign up by 6.15 in the morning in order to get a place because it's free. And everybody goes and is very serious and stays the whole time because that's the selection effect. If uh, an organization puts their uh, job application online, they find that the people who do the online job applications are much less likely to come and show up to work than the people who show up to do a job application. You get more applicants, but you get fewer people who are likely to show up. And OnlyFans girls or women are people who've been selected, who have very little other ways to make money or who are looking for a quick buck. And that's why they tend to not actually make the best use of it that they can. I uh, presume that like all other social media, it tends to reward consistency, um, just consistently re- releasing content. The algorithm just absolutely loves it when <laughs> when users use that. And I, I do that and I assume that's true for OnlyFans just as it is for everything else. And yes, if you're just sort of dropping in and out of this um, supposedly, supposed source to a cheap buck, um, which of course it isn't. And I've always, I mean, I've, I've, I've said elsewhere and I've uh, written in my book that I think it, it, a lot of it is just sort of marketing, um, by the people at OnlyFans to make us think that it's this source of great riches. Have you seen the, the feed finder adverts that you can like buy a new car and a new house by posting pictures of your feed online. And then you find out that you have to pay to post pictures of your feed or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The house always wins. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that OnlyFans is is trickier and I don't think women think about this enough. If you're an escort or a stripper or you work, I don't know, doing any variety of other things, you can have a, uh, you can have a pseudonym at work and nobody will ever know that you were ever a sex worker, you know? Whereas if you are a cam girl or on OnlyFans, that is indelible. 
Yeah. And that's the that's the long term reputational. And I think the risk is not so much. I mean, I completely agree with you. Obviously, people should be allowed to have normal jobs, having been on OnlyFans. It'd be outrageous to fire someone on that basis. The risk really is to future relation, long term relationship prospects. Because um, a lot of men. Well, there'll be a filtering effect, right? So obviously, most OnlyFans, successful OnlyFans women are going to be extremely beautiful. Um, but if a man has a choice between a very beautiful woman who has been on OnlyFans and one who hasn't, almost all men will choose the one who hasn't. Although, you know, Ayla, who's a friend of mine, and even even me, myself, as somebody who's had a, you know, a, a long casual sex history and was, did whatever I felt like doing for 20 years or whatever, um, I don't think, I think that none of the people who I've been engaged to or in long-term relationships with or cohabited with or whatever um, would have rejected me for doing porn. I don't think so. Are those, so are those men, do you think who've sort of, again, self-selected because they're part of the polyamorous network? It could be. I mean, a couple of these people are polyamorous and then some of them are, are not. I just don't think that I would be very well coupled with or suited to somebody who had, uh, traditional sexual norms. And, and I was poly, I don't know, for like the last 10 years or so, but I was engaged to and, and lived with men before that. And I was monogamous often before that. And I don't think those men would have necessarily cared. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, um, we have to, we have to generalize when we're talking about these things, because otherwise you can't, you can't talk about men and women if you're not, if you can't generalize to some extent, but it is, it is, absolutely true and I I thoroughly acknowledge and have acknowledged Ayla as well that there are lots of outliers and lots of people for whom these rules won't won't be true sometimes the outliers are very instructive and actually um sort of reveal uh what's going on in the mainstream do you think that um I know that Jeffrey Husband has written about polyamory potentially becoming much more mainstream and even becoming um uh le- you know having um multiple marriages or um polyamory being recognized in law as time goes by do you think that that is a, a likely trend no <laughs> <laughs> i think polyamory works for a very small subset of people i think for many people it blows up their lives there's a a certain sort of training period or there's a learning curve that's quite steep some people i mean I've had poly friends where on a, on a Saturday night would get together and, and look at, you know, poly message boards, you know, in places like Alabama and just watch, you know, rubberneck at like the, the car crash stuff that was going on, what people were trying to do, uh, that was really beyond either them or their networks, you know, capabilities. Uh, and also it's funny, you know, there are poly people and certainly there's poly people who are, you know, trans and furries and into kinky things and, you know, of all kinds of sexual subcultures. But it still seems to me that um, poly or non-monogamy or whatever is more criticized and threatening and maligned than, I mean, almost any other sexual subculture. I think probably similar to like a polyamorous person and like a vegan furry. <laughs> it's like similarly, you know... Um, I don't think that multiple marriage is going to be encoded in law, not anytime soon. And um, 
certainly the people who are poly who get into the news, you know, on if you look at whatever conservative media or whatever, are these unusually poly people where a woman is having, you know, the 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 children of multiple men, for example, um, which doesn't work, I don't think. Mm. Although um, uh, there are definitely been people who are sort of poly pioneers. Dora Russell thought that you should marry the person who'd be the best, you know, father of your children, but you should be free to have lovers as much as you wanted. And she also had uh, another husband and had a child with somebody else and they all cohabited together. And, uh, and you know, there's this, this story of Agnes Callard, which just came out this week in the New Yorker where she has not a poly arrangement because she's companion with her ex-husband, but, she lives with her ex-husband and her current husband in a home with her uh, three children. And uh, I know why people, people's heads blow up when they see stuff like that because it's disgusting and threatening to them. And I know why people rationalize why their heads should blow up with regard to stuff like that. Cause they're afraid that people are going to try it. Like, well, I don't know that there's lots of, lots of working class people who admire Agnes Callard and want to do what she does. I don't think that's the reading her in the New Yorker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you not, as an evolution psychologist, does your head not blow up a little bit at the idea of having kind of non-kin men living with the children of their rivals? Because we know about the Cinderella effect. Yeah. I wouldn't do it. Uh, you know, and I, and I wrote that on, on Twitter. I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave my husband for somebody I fell in love with. I would have an, an ongoing relationship with somebody else I fell in love with, but I wouldn't have his children. And I, I wouldn't have any, I mean, this is why I married my husband is because I wanted to have his children and I wanted him to be the father to my children. But um, yeah, having unrelated men in the home is already something that's happening all over the place, you know, without role models. Uh, the, the stat that I posted today was that uh, 50% of unmarried people who have children together uh, leave each other. They, they split by the time the child is, is five. And oftentimes they bring Most in stressful years. So you can see why they would. But. Yeah. Um, but if you are with somebody who, this is the other thing is like, it's difficult for me to imagine that some man who is really not jealous and relaxed about you having an affair with somebody else would also be the kind of person who would murder an unrelated child. It's, it's not something I would do, but it just doesn't seem like that, that same man, I can't imagine, you know, the kind of man who flies into a jealous rage is the kind of man who murders a child that's unrelated to him. That's true. Although we also know that there are other ways in which stepchildren are sort of um, mistreated in yeah. the fall well short of murder. Like, like things like stepchildren are less likely to have seatbelts put on them. Yeah. Things like that. Controlling think- everything else. I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I think a lot of this stuff is genetically uh, confounded. So a lot of the you know people have put this huge emphasis on father presence versus father absence, forgetting that the genes that a absent father transmits to his child are totally different than the genes that a, that a present child. You could give people all the incentives in the world to stick together, and you know maybe father absence communicates something developmentally to a child that makes them more likely to be. Uh, criminals or sociopaths or antisocial in some way. Or have earlier menage, so to girls start yeah. the periods early when they don't have that, earlier. Somebody did a, a study, I think it was in India, uh, and this is the only, uh, there might be other studies like this, where they looked at women, uh, they looked at young girls and their age of menarche, where their father um, 
was working away from the home. So what homes where the father stayed, homes where the father left because he didn't want to be with the family anymore, and homes where the father died, so where the mother was was widowed. And if the father died, they didn't have earlier menarche. Oh, that's interesting. So the implication is it's actually not father absence. It's something that's transmitted by the genetics of an absent father, not the actual presence or absence of a father. That's interesting. And there's also the similar... Um figures on the effect of divorce versus the effect of bereavement, that children suffer actually more from divorce in terms of the psychological effect than from bereavement. That's why it's important. But then I guess you might, yeah, <laughs> but, but then I guess you might say that the genetic confounding, I mean, if you could explain that a little bit, because it's quite a countercultural explanation. Okay. Yeah. And it's also, it's not good news to conservatives who just think if people stay together, all these problems would disappear. Okay. So, what people think is that if a father stays in a family, that he communicates love and acceptance to the children, and then they're less likely to be antisocial. And that if a father leaves, they just get cues, whatever, that, that their father doesn't love them, and they don't get a good male role model. You know, Freudian system would say that's a superego. Your father's a superego. And if he leaves, then you don't have any uh, – anyone to judge you, you don't have any guilt, and, and you're more likely to engage in, in antisocial acts. Whereas a genetic explanation says the kind of man who leaves his family is antisocial, and he creates antisocial children. And it's actually not his absence that makes a difference. It was the moment of the conception of those children where that antisocial personality was likely to be transmitted. I mean, this is probably simplifying it. There's almost certainly environmental cues as well, but it seems very likely to me that these things are, are genetically uh, confounded. I was reading um, one of Esther Perel's books and she had this explanation that uh, there's a woman who is incredibly promiscuous in her twenties and Esther Perel says she's incredibly promiscuous because her father left and he was having a lot of affairs and she wants to punish men for what her father did. Well, simpler explanation is her dad was promiscuous and she's promiscuous, right? Promiscuity is terrible. Hmm. Yes. And I suppose personality traits like um, low agreeableness, low conscientiousness, which all might in concert make someone more likely to leave their spouse, that we know that they're definitely heritable. Yeah. Another thing that really bothers me is my impression is that if a man gets together with an abusive woman, that people are likely to blame his poor mate choice. Whereas if a woman gets together with an abusive man, people are likely to say that she got unlucky. Or if she gets together with somebody who's really good, they call her lucky. I saw this a lot with this Agnes Callard New Yorker piece, is that people said that she was lucky. And somebody who chooses an antisocial mate is also more likely to be antisocial themselves because people assortatively mate, that is, they're more likely to get together with somebody similar to them uh, on all kinds of characteristics. And so without victim blaming, I do think that we could better educate women about how to override what might be happening in their loins to actually pick better mates consciously because bad boys are very sexually attractive and men who are more likely to stick around and, and invest are often less so. We have to figure out a way to convey that and not say, okay, if you get together with someone who takes care of you, you just got lucky. Because mm. what you want in the dream scenario is the sexy bad boy who's only a bad boy to other people. 
but is lovely to you. And unfortunately, that 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 Jacqueline Hyde is quite unusual. Not even Jacqueline, simultaneously <laughs> Jacqueline Hyde, you know. Um, that's a romantic, that's a, a great romantic hero, but not that common in, in the real world. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what romance novels play on. You know, somebody who's a bad boy and then invests a lot in you and, and your offspring and is really only kind to you, is only not antisocial with you. And I, I think it's entirely possible that a woman can grow up and you know, there's some data about this, grow up in volatile circumstances, be hungry or stressed out or homeless or any variety of things can happen. And then that alters her mate choice because she's getting cues that, well, A, an investing father isn't necessary to, to have children who live because she's one of them. And B, that you want somebody who's going to give you kids that are going to thrive in this kind of volatile environment. And that's not going to be the nicest, most secure, most agreeable people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the cues are quite um, poorly adapted to the environment, which brings us back to your uncanny Volvers essay, where you say exactly this to do with um, sex robots, that if a man buys a sex robot who fancies him no matter what, because she's programmed to, the cues that they're getting are like, everything that you're doing is fantastic. You are, you know, you are absolutely bossing your environment. When of course that's, that's not true at all. It's completely the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And these are the kinds of cues that men get from, uh, yeah, from porn and from video games. I just think that um, men are, are differentially affected by them. I have wondered, you know, all these people that we know of from, from history, you know, Bentham and Darwin and Adam Smith and, and people like that, um, I think it was Eric Weinstein who did a tweet yesterday that said the world that we see around us could never have built, been built by the people who currently live within it, which I think is deeply uncharitable. <laughs> but I have wondered what geniuses we would have lost to, to porn and video games if they had. Oh, goodness, that's a thought. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And also we just have really struggled in the sort of um, contemporary office culture which is very very hostile to um neuro neuroatypical highly intelligent men in particular yeah mm, yes and maybe they would have taken refuge in video games and porn that's a horrible thought <laughs> yeah i never I, I actually am very prone to addiction both with twitter and video games i've spent days on the floor of my apartment when I was in graduate school playing Angry Birds of all things. No video game is dumb enough that I will not spend days playing it. So I just completely avoid them now because I, I think I have a problem. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a show of conscientiousness in a way, right? That you you know you know how to resist the, um, the triggers. I mean, this is, I think, one of the very terrible things about limbic capitalism, um, so-called, you know, the, the capitalist model that exploits people's um, the feeling parts of people's brains, so gambling and porn and junk food and all these kind of things, that's a, these kind of super normal stimuli, is that some people can resist them quite well and those people tend to do really great in contemporary environment, which is a flush with all sorts of temptations like that. And some people just can't because of for whatever personality reasons or possibly you know his, historical environmental reasons. And they are just so exploited I think by those industries I don't I try not to rely on my self-control so uh I actually give my husband my Twitter password and he gives it to me for 10 minutes and then he takes it away again wow. 
and he's not interested in my Twitter. Good <laughs> <I> login. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then I also use a number of, of things like, like this morning I did my reading that I had to do for a journal club using an app called freedom that locks you completely out of the internet. Yeah. I've used freedom as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think all, um, all professional writers are familiar with every single procrastination app going. <laughs> well, that's hard, Louise, given that you seem like someone has your shit together, that you also use freedom. That makes me feel better. Of course. I do things like going to cafes where I know there's no Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or, um, or like the library that I'm a member of, I've never got the Wi-Fi password from them. And I just plan it so that when I'm there, I have everything ready so that I don't need the internet. And um, that works okay. But I spend far too much time on Twitter, of course you. Um, I want to circle back to because I forgot to follow up with you on this. Um, antinatalism. I'm very interested at the moment because my next book is going to be on um, family and the fact that fertility is falling so fast across the whole world. And um, I, I'm interested in the what evolutionary psychology might tell us about the drive for t- towards antinatalism, which it, it turns out is surprisingly common, at least among people on, you know, on Twitter and on like Guardian comment threads and stuff, um, which seems like such a perverse thing for any evolved animal to feel. But then I suppose maybe what we're discovering post-pill is that people are very motivated to have sex, but they're not very motivated to actually have children. And now we've broken the link. That's becoming evident that some people actually were never that interested all along. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you about my, my grandmother. So my, my German grandmother, uh, she liked to have sex, but she didn't ever want to have children. She had both my father and my aunt, uh, accidentally. She had my father and she wanted to get her tubes tied the same day. She said she woke up from having, I guess they put you under toilet sedation when you gave birth at that time. And she was all excited because she thought that they had tied her tubes at the same time. But this was 1950. You had to give permission from five men to get your tubes tied. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, and she, she really never wanted to have kids at all. And yeah, you're right. So this has been, this has been severed. I don't think that our species has been very well selected uh, for, you know, desire to have children or any kind of, of pro-natalist belief. I had my child extremely late in life. Uh, I was 40 when I had her and um, I have maternal instincts that I, I didn't think that I would have. I was actually really considering whether or not I was going to have the maternal instincts to be um, a good mother. And uh, actually somebody told me that if I've ever taken good care of an animal, that I'd make a good mom. Uh, And this is another thing that people talk about is parasitizing the the maternal and paternal mechanisms. Uh, But you're exactly right. And all of the ways that we have evolved uh, to show off, to be attractive to mates, all of these things that we do are, reinforcing in and of themselves and sex is reinforcing in and of itself and the actual end goal uh, which takes a long time is very distal from the things that we do and actually not nearly as reinforcing as many of the things that we evolved to do to get there including making ourselves attractive showing off to mates gaining status and especially now that one of the main ways that you gain status or you signal to your in-group is by talking about how terrible things are and how bad the world is and how bad environmental degradation is or how bad prejudice is. Uh, it can be quite difficult, I think, for people 
to say this is a good world to bring up children in when they're signaling to their in-group all the time about how terrible the world is. Mm. Well, Greg Lucian, of course, the, um, the anti-CBT effect of progressive politics where it encourages you to do everything psychologically that CBT discourages you from doing, like catastrophizing, being paranoid, all this kind of stuff. He's, yeah, he's right. And yes, then going away and having five or six children does seem to sort of disprove that view. Um, I mean, presumably what might happen with time is that if now the people who are much more motivated to have children, who, you know, very, very maternal women, for instance, will be selected for um, post-pill, unless other evolutionary pressures enter the mix, which I'm sure they will. But that particular trait could just become much more common. Yeah, I think that a lot of people have talked about how what's going to become more common is being very religious, not necessarily yeah. uh, maternal instinct, because religious people are going to outcompete uh, non-religious people. One thing I have considered is that, you know, how people worry about, you know, polygenic screening and uh, what, what, how are you going to change the genetic pool? And what if we really need depressed, bipolar, schizophrenic people in the future? Are there going to be any genes left for those people? Uh, but if we had something like artificial wombs uh, for long enough, women might evolve away from the capacity to actually give birth themselves. The same way yeah, that... And you wouldn't be limited on head size and things like that. That's right, yeah. The same way that um, many people have to have their wisdom teeth removed now because our jaws have gotten smaller. Many people think this is because we don't chew very hard foods for hours at a time when we're growing and developing, that our jaws stay smaller than they would otherwise. And our jaws are too small to accommodate all the teeth that we are meant to have. Mm. That's a thought. All right, Diana, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go now. Well, no, I'm not gonna let you go. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna I'm gonna close off this episode. First time ever, we're gonna do a special extended episode where we can maybe get into talking about um whether or not artificial wombs are a good idea. I don't think they are, but we can we can discuss it. Um for everyone who um uh, free subscribers who are about to who are about to come to the end of the episode, can you tell them where you can find more of your work and and uh your Substack in particular? Sure. Yeah. My name is Diana Fleischman. I have a website that I will hopefully have updated by the time you hear that. That's this is dianafleischman.com. I am on Twitter at sentientist and I have a substack called dissentient. So sentientist. Well, if you just Google my name, all of this stuff will come up. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>